From Virginia to Texas, Illinois to Arizona, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, the inflation rate unexpectedly ticked up in January, indicating the nation's inflationary cycle is continuing. We get details from Ryan Young of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. For only the second time in U.S. history, the House of Representatives has voted to impeach a cabinet secretary. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth is here with the real story. Has the student loan crisis been caused by universities pushing students to take on more debt than they can afford? Eric Baim and Emma Campa of Reason Magazine take a closer look. And football season ended with the Super Bowl, but... And his American Radio Journal commentary, Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College says, the past season proves the NFL remains greedy, woke, and stupid. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. Rampant inflation has cooled to just plain inflation, but the inflation rate remains significantly above the Fed's target. Ryan Young is here with a look at the latest numbers. He is a senior economist at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ryan, welcome back to American Radio Journal. Ryan, we have new inflation numbers here for the month of January, and it appears that the inflationary genie has not quite been put back into the bottle yet. Want to tell us what the latest numbers show? The target is 2%, and the numbers that just came out are a little above 3%. But it's actually a little bit worse than that. If you dig underneath the surface, um, you take out food and energy prices, which just move of their own accord for reasons having nothing to do with inflation. We're looking at 3.9% inflation, which is almost double the target. Now, we're not going to go back to the 9.2% inflation that we peaked at. The Federal Reserve has been doing more or less the right thing for about two years now. They've gotten the money supply under control. Um, Congress and the president have refrained from big stimulus bills that have made inflation worse for a while now. But we can't get that last step done, going from 3 or 4% down to 2%. And there are reasons for that uh, that the Federal Reserve can't do that much about. Want to tell us a little bit what those reasons might be? Yeah, I think the reason is confidence and expectations that, you know, the sort of things that you can't quantify or put into an economic model, but still have a real effect on inflation. Basically, the next time there's an economic slowdown, people are basically expecting the Federal Reserve to panic again, just like they did during COVID. And they expect Congress and whoever's president to pass a large spending bill that'll cause even more inflation. So until these uh, people's expectations will be for policymakers to restrain themselves. When people sign long-term contracts or companies make purchasing decisions up and down their supply chains, they're going to factor in long-term inflation being a little higher than they'd like. Um, until those expectations get in line, inflation's not going to get in line either. One of the causes of inflation, of course, has been the excessive spending that has occurred in Washington. Once again, they're talking about $95 billion in aid to Ukraine to Israel and even Taiwan. When you take a look at this talk coming out of Washington, does that play into that expectations game? Not so much. The inflation we've been dealing with comes out of COVID and the Federal Reserve, by context, uh, increased the money supply not by $95 billion, but by $5 trillion. 
and the spending bills that Congress and the president passed uh, amount to even more than that. So we're talking trillions and trillions of dollars. So while an aid package or any other spending bill won't make inflation any better, um, any impact they do have is deep decimal at most. There's a difference between the overall inflation rate and so-called core inflation. Could you drill down to that a little bit more? And what is involved in the core inflation rate? That's a good question. And I urge your listeners to pay more attention to that core rate than to the standard one that you see in the headlines. Um, What the core rate does is it tries to look, uh, it excludes food and energy prices because those go up and down all the time. The reason why the core inflation is reading just under 4% right now instead of right over 3% for the headline is because energy prices have been falling quite a bit. And that happens, there are seasonal factors, there are supply chain factors, um, all these things that have nothing to do with underlying monetary inflation. So the headline number gives a distorted reading. The core CPI, by leaving those things out, gives you a better, not a perfect picture, but a better picture what's happening with the underlying monetary inflation that is our real long-term concern here. The equity markets this past week didn't react too well to the latest inflation numbers. Why is it that the markets have such an adverse reaction whenever inflation ticks up maybe a little bit more than expected? It's because inflation is a very sensitive issue. Uh, It's been Americans' number one concern for several years going and Right now, things going on with the controversy at the border and some other issues are making headlines right now. Um, A month or two from now, maybe not. We'll see. Um, But people are very sensitive about inflation. And one thing about the financial markets, they're not necessarily on our side on this one. They love it when when the Federal Reserve lowers interest rates, which raises inflation. When the Fed does lower rates, we'll see what happens. The stock market will have a rally day and all that. That might not necessarily be good for the economy, but it might be good to have stocks on that day. (laughs) So I don't pay too much attention to financial markets when it comes to economic well-being. In terms of the Fed here, Ryan, they have been talking about easing back a bit on interest rates, maybe a couple of quarter point cuts later this year. The fact that we see inflation still not down to the target level is that sort of a harbinger that maybe those cuts may be a little bit longer in coming? Yeah, I think they're going to wait on that. They meet every six weeks to make a new decision. The next one will be on March 20. And I don't think they're planning on cutting rates in March anyway. But with this news, it's definitely not going to happen now. Uh, We'll see what happens if they meet in June or August or whenever those summer dates are. But it's not going to happen in March 20. The average American family here, Ryan, sitting at the kitchen table, planning out their food budget, paying the mortgage, trying to also keep gas in the car. Is there still a hesitancy at that kitchen table about the direction of the economy, given the fact that inflation has risen overall, what, about 19% in the last three years? That's now baked into the economy, is it not? That's exactly right. Since COVID, the dollar has devalued by 19%. And only recently have families' wages started catching up. And even then, gas prices and food prices, those change all the time. They update their signs and their price tags every day. When you get a pay raise, that's maybe once a year. So even if your wages catch up on paper, there's still that lag time between this year's raise and next year's raise. So families are being very careful about their big purchasing decisions and the high interest rates that we're having to deal with. That is part of the price that you pay for getting inflation under control is another factor. So 
the economy is in good shape overall, but it could be a lot better. Ryan Young is senior economist at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We've been talking about inflation and uh, how you at the kitchen table are feeling about our economy. Ryan, want to tell us a little bit about the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and also you write a lot about this. Where can folks find those writings? CEI's website is cei.org. We are a think tank based in Washington. We cover all things regulation from finance to labor to manufacturing. Um, If it involves regulation, we cover it, and our website is cei.org. Ryan Young of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Ryan, thank you for being with us. Thank you. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth, keeping an eye on things that are happening in Capitol Hill. Also, a special election this past week for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives. A lot going on. Scott, good to have you here. Well, thanks for having me back, Loman. There was, for the first time in 150 years, Scott, the impeachment of a cabinet secretary by the House of Representatives, Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. Tell us a bit about that. It was by one vote, but an impeachment nonetheless. A week or so before that, you had the House of Representatives give it a shot, and it failed after three Republicans, Ken Buck, Tom McClintock, and Mike Gallagher, voted against the impeachment. And it failed by just one vote. That's how close things have been in Washington. Well, the thing was, is Steve Scalise, the House Majority Leader for the Republicans, was uh, wrapping up some of his treatment for cancer, and he received a stem cell transplant. So they asked him to isolate for really over a month. And uh, he returned to Washington this week, and he was effectively the tie-breaking vote. And it passed by one vote, as you mentioned. And so Mayorkas has been impeached. I don't expect the United States Senate to really do a whole lot with this. We're not expecting articles of impeachment to receive the type of committee and floor activity as as other impeachments of United States presidents have received. But, you know, that being said, I think it's a it's a big, big signal to the administration and to the American people that we have to do something about our border security. We know that hundreds of thousands of illegal immigrants are coming across the border every single month. There are laws on the books right now that President Biden and his administration are completely ignoring because they ultimately want to change the fabric of America. They want to bring in more Democrats. They want to bring in people from 160 different countries. And they basically want to create this chaos as it pertains to the people's public safety, when it's drugs, whether it's trafficking of people. I think that it's alarming. And the United States of America, we do believe in the rule of law. And so I think that President Biden, he, maybe he should be impeached next because there is a provision within the Constitution. It's called the Take Care Clause. And he has been completely ignoring his responsibility to take care of the laws of the United States of America. In the wake of that, and you mentioned that this was passed by one vote, everything very tight in Congress. There are, however, a number of open seats, three or four seats that are vacant for various reasons. One was filled by a special election this past week, sort of a a bit notorious on its own. It went Democrat. Is that any sort of a harbinger or is that a seat that we would have expected that sort of an outcome? You remember in 2022, Lee Zeldin was running for governor of New York and he performed very well on a a public safety message. We picked up several seats out of the New York delegation, including George Santos, 
Well, Santos was perceived to be a liar and a criminal by all of his peers in the House of Representatives. And although his due process was never completed, he was thrown out of the House of Representatives, and that created this special election. What we saw this week was the Democrats running up a big, big score here early. If you kind of think about an election season being the first three quarters of the game, they used early voting and mail-in voting to get an insurmountable lead. And then there was a big storm in New York, even though the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the Republican super PAC, paid for snow plows and snow removal and all sorts of things to try to encourage Republicans to get out there, they lost by almost 10%. And I think what it is indicative of is that the Republican voter, the conservative voter, needs to trust the system of voting in person early. A lot of people don't feel comfortable with a drop box. I fully understand that. But when the Democrats are running up the score and then able to, instead of just worrying about themselves on Election Day, bring out other voters on top of it, that's how they're winning these races. And so fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. We saw what happened in the 2020 election as it pertained to mail-in voting and early voting. The Democrats ran up the score big time there. And so I think that in 2024, Republicans need to take note and vote in person and vote early. Yeah, as much as we dislike and don't trust a lot of this mail-in balloting and early voting systems here, it's a fact of life and it is costing us elections. Meanwhile, uh, back on Capitol Hill, there is a renewed effort or renewed efforts uh, to pass some sort of aid to Ukraine and Israel and even Taiwan that was tied initially to a border bill, which was shall we say, a complete turkey and went down in flames as it should have. But there's still the need for this aid, Scott. So is that moving forward at all? Or is it also bogged down in the closeness of the U.S. Congress? Speaker Mike Johnson has said that he's not going to take up the uh, Senate passed bill. That bill includes $95.3 billion in foreign aid, including $60 billion just to Ukraine about $18 billion to Israel, and then uh, money to, in other buckets of sort of the foreign aid budget. It also includes humanitarian assistance to Gaza. And the political party that rules Gaza right now is still Hamas. So I think that there's a lot of concern from House conservatives about moving forward with that bill, even though it provides direct assistance to some of our allies like Israel. Going forward, I would imagine that the Democrats in the House of Representatives will try to do what's known as a discharge petition, where they can use the House procedures to move forward on legislation that's opposed by the Speaker. And what they would need is a number of House Republicans to join them on the discharge petition. So the big challenge here for Speaker Mike Johnson is, can he keep the Republican conference unified to reject the Democrats' attempt to take over the House? Are we not seeing the type of fiscal restraint out of Congress that we need in order to get inflation under control? Listen, I think this is all part of the plan from Bidenomics. They're trying to run up inflation, run up costs, and make people more dependent on their liberal policies that are effectively anti-poverty welfare benefit programs, cash benefits. They want to include the illegal alien population among that in receiving those benefits. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, tell us a little bit about the club. Sure. Well, the Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. They're united in this idea of liberty, freedom, and opportunity. If you want to learn more, visit clubforgrowth.org. 
Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Thanks, Scott. We'll talk to you next week. Okay. Thank you. President Biden wants taxpayers to foot the bill for student loan debt caused by universities pushing students to borrow more money than they can afford to pay back. We learn more from Eric Bame and Emma Campa of Reason Magazine. The so-called student loan crisis is something that gets talked about by both Democrats and Republicans. But as our guest today is going to tell us, there's actually kind of a a deeper story to much of the supposed student loan crisis. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Emma Camp. She's an assistant editor for us at Reason, and she's also the author of a fantastic feature that you can find in the latest edition of the print magazine. The Real Student Loan Crisis is the headline on that feature. Emma joins us now to talk a bit about it. Thanks for taking some time with us today, Emma. Thanks for having me. Uh, You are, uh, of course, not only Reason's uh, resident expert on the student loan crisis and the contours of it and and the the degree to which it exists or doesn't exist, but you're also a recent college grad. We'll talk a bit about that a little bit later as well, but you've kind of lived this story in some sense. Let's start with this idea of exactly of, of what the real student loan crisis is, which, as you point out in the piece here, actually it has a lot less to do with undergrad loans, which I think is what most people probably think about when they think about the student loan crisis. They think about people who went and got a four-year degree. Most of the people who are really buried in debt, we're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, they're actually graduate students. Yeah, so when I set out to write this piece, I too sort of had that misconception that the student loan crisis was mostly among undergraduate students, right? When you hear people talk about this, they talk about young people who just want to have a middle-class life. They have to take on this burdensome, sort of life-delaying, destroying debt. But when I actually looked into it, what I found is that it's more than possible to finance a solid undergraduate degree with less than $30,000 in student loan debt. And that ends up really paying off. For men who get a college degree, they can expect to make almost a million dollars more over the course of their careers than a man who only got a high school degree. And for women, that's about $600,000. So getting an undergraduate degree is still quite a good idea, and taking on some debt to do it is also worth it. The problem is that that is not necessarily the case with graduate degrees. We just don't see the same kind of return on investment for graduate degrees, and that's because Whether or not getting a graduate degree is a good idea really depends on a lot of factors. Taking on a lot of debt to become a doctor is probably a good idea. Taking on a lot of debt to become a social worker probably isn't. And part of why this is the case is that currently the federal government has a a pretty low cap on the amount that you can borrow per year from the government for an undergraduate degree. And so because of that, it it necessarily forces colleges to keep their net prices fairly low. But in 2006, the government removed that cap on graduate degrees, meaning that graduate students can borrow up to the cost of attendance. So unsurprisingly, this incentivized colleges to massively raise their prices, and it also incentivized students who might otherwise think twice about enrolling in a low-value program to go ahead and do that. You talk to, and, and this this whole piece in the magazine, again, the headline here, folks, is The Real Student Loan Crisis. It's built around uh, this woman, 27-year-old woman named Heather, and she's got something like $90,000 in debt, and she graduate program and is now making something like $25 an hour. Tell us a little bit about Heather. Yeah, so Heather's story is, is really uh, tragic in many ways, and I think it is a really good case study of what just went wrong here. So Heather grew up actually 
in foster home. She had her first child as a teenager. She was homeless for a while. She even was in a domestic violence shelter when her child's father became abusive. And, you know, what she told me is that her parents were drug addicts. She had faced all of this dysfunction. And she went, you know what, like, I don't want my kids to grow up in poverty. I don't want them to have to live the way I did. And so she you know, had sort of a classic, like, pulling yourself up story. She worked really hard. She got a bunch of associate's degrees, and she then got an undergraduate degree. But then her problem is that she was having a hard time finding a job with her psychology degree and was sort of the victim of some unscrupulous uh, recruitment tactics from USC, who has, uh, by some measures, the largest, or at the time, the largest graduate social work program in the country. And part of this is that they have a huge online program. So even though Heather lived in Southern California, she lived about 40 minutes away from USC's campus, these recruiters convinced her not to apply to other schools and to do the online program. Um, And this program was absurdly expensive. So she ended up getting over $90,000 in student loan debt for an online social work degree that she feels was educationally inadequate. And so, yeah, now she's working as a public school social worker and making the same amount that she said she made when she was a manager at a frozen yogurt shop. It's as you said, it's really a tragic story. And I think like the thing that really gets me about this and you can probably speak to this better than I can as a recent college grad, Emma. But if you're somebody in Heather's position, somebody who's working your way through an undergrad degree, trying to you know improve your standing in the world, maybe you don't have a lot of the support structures that somebody like you or I might have been able to rely on in that situation. Like you're probably trusting the people that you're talking to uh, at your school or, or associated with your school, associated with your program about what the next steps are. Are. And and she it's kind of seems like she got led down this road that maybe lots of other students are too of like well you, of course you have to go get a graduate degree now that's just naturally the next step in the process oh by the way it comes with a ninety thousand dollar price tag right I think there's a message given to a lot of college students that actually an undergrad degree is just like graduating high school was for your parents you have to get a master's degree to be able to do anything and that's not necessarily true especially when you know there are some there are some places where that might be the case you know the the engineering master's degree or the medical or law degree are a good example but a lot of times going to graduate school isn't worth it and ends up leading you worse off than you would have been if you just saved the money Yeah, really sad story. Really important story, honestly. Folks, you can check it out in the latest edition of Reason. It'll also be up at Reason.com eventually as well. Uh, The headline there, The Real Student Loan Crisis by Emma Camp. Emma, we're unfortunately out of time for today, but thanks for the conversation. Thanks for having me. And again, that is Emma Camp. She's an assistant editor at Reason Magazine. Uh, check out that piece and, and all of her other work, really fantastic work on the uh, the breadth, length, uh, sort of the width and breadth of the student loan crisis. Find that and everything else we're working on at Reason.com. For Reason Magazine, I'm Eric Baim. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Greedy, woke, and stupid. That's today's National Football League. Dr. Paul Kengor from the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College counts the ways on this American Radio Journal Commentary. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. (laughs) Such were the immortal words of wisdom of the grim Dean Warmer to Kent Flounder Dorfman, the, well, fat, drunk, and stupid frat boy in the iconic 1978 National Lampoon film Animal House. Now, those aren't the exact three adjectives I'd evoke to describe the National Football League, but they sort of rhyme with my quaint description of the league as greedy, woke, and stupid. 
Or maybe I'm just looking for an excuse to quote from Animal House. <laughs> but anyway, let's move on. Starting with woke. That the NFL has become woke is beyond dispute. Pick your politically correct absurdity. How about the NFL's, quote, football is gay, unquote, campaign every Pride Month, when the NFL isn't even playing ball that month? By the way, spoiler alert to progressives, a person can be gay, but a sport or football cannot. Or how about the end racism campaign, whereby every NFL end zone displays those giant letters? I ask you, what could be more absurd than preaching and racism to a stadium of 70,000 white people paying $500 tickets to cheer fanatically for their heroes who are multi-million dollar black athletes, while all those white folks wear the jerseys of those athletes? But I digress. Enough of the wokeness. I shall proceed with my point on greed, which also connects to my claim about the NFL's stupidity. Greed. The NFL has nearly ruined its product with excessive advertising. Games are effectively unwatchable thanks to the obscene amount of commercials. Rather than broadcasting astute analysis or showing something that has to do with football on the field, the TV networks immediately jump straight to commercials at any given opportunity. At my house, we actually record games or start them late simply so we can skip through all the commercials. Ironically, the commercials can be intolerable even when you're watching the game in person at the stadium. Why? Because you're forced to endure lengthy, mindless TV timeouts that leave the stadium in a stupor, often a drunk stupor for about half the stadium, given all the fans who were boozing it up at tailgate parties before kickoff. The TV timeouts suck the life right out of the crowd. I've witnessed it many times. Of course, the NFL does so much advertising because they can't get enough money. Quarterbacks, if you haven't noticed, are signing nine-figure contracts. Yes, that's nine figures, as in, say, like $250 million. Now the NFL has come up with a new novelty to make yet more money. It moved to a 17-game schedule, which is way too many games. For many years, it was 16, and before that, it was 14 games. We're seeing two crucial ways in which this longer season is stupidly counterproductive. First, injuries. Football, obviously, is a brutal sport. Only the rarest athletes survive even a 14-game schedule unscathed. Whether through torn ACLs, Achilles, groins, or multiple concussions, hazardous not only to the health but the brain. And that brings me to another reason why the 14-game schedule was far more optimal. Weather. It has been a major problem for the NFL in January in this current playoff round. The Pittsburgh Steelers-Buffalo Bills game in Buffalo had to be rescheduled because of a blizzard and New York State travel bans. Then there was the dangerously cold Chief-Dolphins game in Kansas City, which should have been rescheduled. The weather was downright hazardous. Then again, if the greedy NFL was to cancel the game, when would it reschedule? The options aren't good because that game occurred during the first of multiple weeks of NFL playoffs that won't end until mid-February. I should add that the 17-game season is extended even longer by the fact that the NFL permits 14 teams, that is almost half of the 32 teams in the league, to make the playoffs. The first Super Bowl that my Pittsburgh Steelers played in, Super Bowl IX, occurred on January 12, 1975, in warmer New Orleans, Louisiana. Actually, it was cold that day in Tulane Stadium. After all, it was January. But think about that. In 1975, the season ended on January 12th. In 2024, the playoffs started on January 13th. Lesson to be learned? 
playing NFL games deep into winter is highly ill-advised. Why does the NFL do it then? Money, 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 money. Money that the NFL can't get enough of. Oh, by the way, these NFL geniuses, they want to move to an 18-game schedule. That's not just stupidity, but greedy stupidity. Greedy, woke, and stupid. That's no way to go through life, son. For American Radio Journal, I'm Paul Kengor. Thanks for listening. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WRXV-FM in State College, Pennsylvania, WCHW-FM in Chihuahua, Washington, along with WIBW-AM and FM in Topeka, Kansas. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. Learn more about American Radio Journal and hear expanded versions of some interviews aired on this program. Please visit our website, AmericanRadioJournal.com. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.